Hey again, welcome to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont campus. It's good to talk to you again. If we don't know each other, my name is Brian, and I'm the pastor of Mount Hope's campus in Belmont. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded as a part of our Groupthink sermon series. Each Sunday, we're taking an assumption that we tend to believe as a culture and asking if that assumption is true or not. This week, Justin Joseph does an excellent job answering the question for us, what is good? How do we define good? We all want to be good. We all want to do good things. But what is good anyway? Justin walks us through that question, and I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you listen closely, because I believe that God has something He'd like to say Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Justin. I serve on the preaching team here at Mount Hope, and it's really a joy to see everyone this morning as we look into God's Word for just a few minutes. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been in a sermon series that we call Group Think, this idea of challenging some of the major assumptions that we have in our world and our society today, challenging them to see what the Word of God has to say about those very same assumptions. Now, assumptions are kind of an interesting thing. We make them every single day. We make assumptions based on some of the smallest matters and some of the most important and major matters in our lives every single day. This morning, I woke up and I heard a weather report, and I assumed that the weatherman knows what he's talking about, and I dressed accordingly. Now, if my assumption was wrong, I may get really sweaty today or get really cold today, but at the end, it doesn't really make that much of a difference what I assume based on what the weatherman has to say. But what if we were to make assumptions based on far more significant things in our lives with serious consequences? What would that look like? A couple of years ago, I read a story about a woman in the United Kingdom, in the UK, who would buy a lottery ticket every single week, and she would play the exact same numbers every single week. And at the end of the week, she would watch and see as she lost another week, week after week after week. For decades, she played the same exact numbers. And the thing that she always did was she had her husband go to the store, buy the ticket, and then come home with the ticket. Now, this specific week, her husband went out and got, his, got the ticket, played the exact same numbers that she played every single week, and somewhere along the way decided, I'm going to clean out my pockets, and decided to throw out whatever was in his pocket, including a ticket that would eventually be worth $181 million dollars. The assumption was, I don't need what's in my pocket right now, I can just simply throw it out, and the assumption led to a pretty serious consequence. In 1999, NASA contracted with Lockheed Martin, the major defense contractor, to build an orbiter that would go around the planet Mars. And in the process, they had Lockheed Martin design this navigation system for the Mars orbiter. And in the process, Lockheed Martin decided, look, we're working for an American brand, NASA, so we will make all of the measurements for the GPS system using the English standard measurement, thinking, look, feet, inches, that type of thing would make much more sense for NASA. They made an assumption. The assumption happened to be incorrect because the GPS was connected to a company, a brand in Denver, that was using the metric system. As a result, they launched this orbiter, and a couple of days later, they realized the information on the GPS is not communicating with the information back in Denver. 
they lost the orbiter. That orbiter cost $125 million because of an assumption. In 1994, the Quaker Company, you're all familiar with Quaker brand cereal and oatmeal, the Quaker Company decided to make an assumption. In 1994, they believed that the most popular drink that Americans will consume in bottled form would be iced tea, that every American would be drinking iced tea in the 90s and into the 2000s. And so they went on their assumption and they spent $1.7 billion to buy the brand Snapple, and they bought them back in 1994. In 1995, the most popular drink in America became bottled water the next year. (laughs) And we know today it is still the most popular beverage is bottled water. They lost $1.4 billion in the deal. These assumptions sometimes have serious consequences when they are mistaken assumptions. But what if I were to tell you that all over this world today and even within the church, billions of people are living their lives based on an assumption that is completely false and they're banking not only this life, but the life to come based on that assumption. What if I were to tell you that so many of us are tempted to live our lives based on an assumption that we believe is true, but we've never tested it, we've never looked into it, and if we were to look into it, we would find pretty quickly we are risking our lives based on an assumption that's not true at all. And today the assumption we're going to look at is a simple assumption that says, if I do good things, then I am good. If I do good things, then I must be good. It seems like such a simple assumption. It seems like something that makes sense. If I do good things and I will be rewarded with heaven, I will be rewarded with eternal life. If I'm a good person, if I give, if I'm generous, if I'm kind to other people, if I fight for the social injustices in the world today, then God will be pleased with me and he will grant me the wages that I deserve. He will grant me heaven. He will give me a reward for what I am what I deserve. But as we study it a little bit further, we find out that this assumption leads to other assumptions as well. And all kinds of assumptions are built off of that first assumption that if I'm good, if I do good things, then I must be good. Then we start to assume other things that good people must go to heaven or I don't need God to be good. I already know what the difference is between good and evil. I can make up for my past bads by doing more goods in the present time today. That if I do good, it earns me points with God. Or even to another extreme, to believe that doing good things is the most important thing that I can do in this life. So many parts of our society today are built around this idea. Think about the arguments we have on social media and the arguments we have in our conversations in our society today. Everyone is arguing about how much better my version of the world is, how much good my belief system does versus your belief system. There's this constant push to believe that we know what good is, and if I do those good things, then I must be good. 
Let's take a look at a passage of Scripture that defines a little bit of what we're talking about and shows us a little bit of the delusion that we've believed that we can be good, that we can know what good is, that we can be these good people that we think we are. And that's found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. If you want to use the Bibles in the seats in front of you, you're welcome to do that. I'll have the verses right on the screens behind us as well. This is Jesus speaking to a group of people called the Pharisees who were testing him one day. And this is what happens in that interaction. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Two commandments that Jesus gives the people who ask him a question, which is the greatest commandment? Now, if you are a Jewish believer in that time or even a Jewish person in that, in that vicinity, in that community at the time, you knew about the hundreds upon hundreds of laws that you were forced to, uh, to believe and to use every day in your life. Things like how to wash your hands, how to eat your meals, how to worship God. Everything was prescribed by law to look a certain way. And in the midst of that, Jesus summarizes the entire law with two commandments. Number Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. This was revolutionary to believe all of the law could be summed up into two simple commandments. But there's a little phrase in between that we often ignore. That phrase goes like this, and the second is like it. Jesus gives the first command and then says, and the second is like it. He draws a connection, a comparison, a connection between the two commandments. That loving the Lord your God goes hand in hand with loving your neighbor as yourself. The two things go together. They work together. But here's what we've done in our society, in our world today. We have separated these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself have become two separate commandments with no connection between them. Think about the people around us. Oftentimes in the church, we get obsessed with love the Lord your God with all your heart, but we often can ignore love your neighbor as yourself. Look at the world around us. Sometimes we get obsessed with love your neighbor as yourself. We get obsessed with social justice and fighting racism, sexism, fighting every sort of thing that's happening in the world. We get obsessed with that, but we disconnect it from loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus says, and the second is like it. So we need to take a moment now to figure out then, why are they connected? How are these two commands connected? You see, is there such a thing as good? Is there such a thing as being moral? Is there such a thing as justice if there is no God in the equation, if there is no God in the middle of that situation? 
You see, for the Christian, for the believer in Christ, yes, there absolutely is. There is a moral objective is what we call it. It's another way of saying there's a way to know what is right and what is wrong no matter how I feel about it. There is an objective standard to what is good and what is evil. For the Christian, we believe that every person is created in the image of God and therefore I must treat that person likewise because they're created in the image of God. If you think about Christianity through the generations, what that meant when the bubonic plague hit Europe, when the plague had decimated thousands upon thousands of people and left cities ravaged, what did Christians do during that time? Rather than leaving the city and going to other places and spreading the plague there, the Christians stayed in those cities. They took care of the people around them. They built hospitals and they took care of everyone who was struggling with the plague. In fact, we have through history and, and documents, we see that men like Cyprian, who was a very famous Christian, in the first century, in, the, in those times, was, was almost excited about the fact that the plague was spreading because it was a chance to bring Christ into those situations. It was an opportunity to love and to show people how to behave during a time of crisis in a community. Instead of fear and despondency, these people were running into the face of trouble to rescue others. Pastor Brian talked about Convoy of Hope a couple of minutes ago and everything that's been happening with Hurricane Irma and with, with all the other problems that have been happening in terms of natural disasters. I saw an article this past week from USA Today and the headline simply reads, Faith Groups Provide the Bulk of Disaster Recovery in Coordination with FEMA. There's a specific quote in that article that said, 80% of recovery efforts are provided by nonprofits, most of which are faith-based organizations. As people were looking into how the recovery was going in Houston and in Florida and in Puerto Rico and in, in parts of Mexico, they were finding over and over again that organizations like FEMA, like the federal government, was coordinating the care. But who was providing the actual volunteers? Who was providing the supplies and the goods and the services? It was churches. It was groups that believed in God in their whole heart that my brother and sister in Houston that I've never met is still my brother and sister because they were created in the image of God, there is an objective moral truth to that, so I will do good because God loves me and because God shows grace upon me. For the Christian, there is such a thing as an objective moral standard. There is a difference between right and wrong because God is above it all and tells us what that difference looks like. And so as Christians, we don't fight human trafficking and slavery simply because it's trendy today, but because we believe in a God that loves every person individually. We don't fight racism simply because people are talking about it in the news today. We fight it because we genuinely believe that God created every person in his image. We don't fight for the rights of the unborn child simply because that's something that someone did 50 years ago. We believe that every person is created in the image image of God. And because of that, we have an objective moral standard that we do everything by, and that's how the Christian moves forward. But with all that said, what often happens in the church today is we separate love the Lord your God with all your heart from love your neighbor as yourself, and we think of these two things as separate poles, separate entities that we address separately in our lives. And here's what can often happen. Sometimes we in the church can start to assume that I will go do a bunch of good things, but I don't really need to direct it back to God. I don't really need to connect it back to God in any way. 
And that goes against so much of what we've seen throughout history. All over the world today, even in some of the most remote parts of the world, are hospitals started by Christian missionaries, are orphanages and schools started by Christian missionaries. There are wells that have been dug up to to bring water to villages all over this world by Christian missionaries. It's not because they thought that in and of itself was the end, but they thought this is a way to connect my good works and my showing of my faith back to the God who showed me grace and loved me. There was a connection between loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. A connection between the two. But that connection can only happen if there is a moral objective, if there is a standard of good that God provides to us that we can get from nowhere else. So for us as followers of Christ, and if you call yourself a follower of Christ today, you've got to ask that question. Do I get so fixated on one of the commandments that I don't bring the two commandments together? Do I get so fixated on loving God that I don't take the time to love my neighbor? Or do I love my neighbor so much but not direct them back to God? Is there a separation in those two commands that Jesus actually joined together? Now, what does this mean for the non-believer? And maybe that's you this morning as you sit here You're kind of questioning everything. You're questioning this place. You're questioning the music. You're questioning the speaker. You're questioning everything. And for you, you're sitting here and saying, yes, I can be good without God. I've done good things without God. I've seen other people who were really kind and nice to me, and they were not Christians. It is possible to be good without God. But to that, I ask the question, how do you know? What is the standard of good that you're living by? Whose opinion of good are you basing that on? If there is no God, all that you call good is ultimately someone's opinion of good. Is there a moral, objective standard to what is good? In 1965, Housekeeping Monthly magazine released a list. And I would like to take a huge risk and read that list to you right now. Housekeeping Monthly Magazine offered the following advice to women in what they called the guide to being a good wife. If anyone wants to get a Lynn a pen right now, she's probably taking notes right now. (laughs) That was a mistake. (laughs) So, So here is what Housekeeping Monthly in 1965 said is the guide to being a good wife. Please, again, this is not my opinion. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious dinner ready when your husband gets home from work. This is a way of letting him know you have been thinking about him and are concerned with his needs. Prepare yourself. Put on some makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair and be fresh-looking. He's been with a lot of work-weary people all day. Prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash them up, brush their hair, and (laughs) and change their clothes if needed. Remember, they are little treasures, and he would like to see them playing the part. Have a cool or warm drink ready for him, and arrange his pillow and take off his shoes. Wow. (laughs) Over the cooler months, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. After all, catering to his comfort will bring you immense satisfaction. Let him talk first. (laughs) Remember that his topics of conversation are more important than yours. Right. Never complain if he comes home late or goes out to dinner or entertainment without you. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressures and his need to relax. 1965, 
housekeeping monthly guide to being a good wife. Why did we laugh when we read that? Someone somewhere thought that was the objective truth. That was the absolute moral standard by which a woman or a wife should live by. And today, in 2017, we laugh at that idea. But do you see that for all of us, if there is no God telling us what the moral objective is, every generation just has their opinion on something. And we live by our opinions rather than an objective moral standard of what is good. So everything that I do that I think is good could ultimately just be someone's opinion of what I think is good. And please let me take a second to affirm again We as a church are so happy about the fact that our world wants to do good, that people want to fight injustices, that we want to make sure that, socially speaking, our world is more just and fair, that we we want to make sure that people are treated fairly because they're created in the image of God. We love those things. But if there is no objective moral standard, if there is no real way to know what works and what doesn't work, all we're doing is, it's like we're running a race where we don't know where the finish line is, we don't know who will be awarded and at what pace you'll be awarded by. It's like doing all of this and not knowing why we're doing it. I believe wholeheartedly that all of us are capable of doing good without God. I believe that. But can we know what is good without God? That's impossible. Unless there is a moral objective, unless there is a standard, we can never know what is truly good. And as a result, we fall into this assumption, this false assumption that if I do good things, then I am good, and thereby, if I am good, I will go to heaven. And that's where there's this massive dissection of what we're believing. And there's where the false assumption can cause us all kinds of troubles, not only in this life, but the life to come. A a survey by LifeWay Research found out recently that 72% of Americans believe that there is a place called heaven, but that this place is a place where good people go. 72% of Americans. That includes many, many Christians who believe that. 60% of Christians in America responded by saying, everyone will eventually get to heaven. Now, that's quite the assumption to live by, especially if that assumption is never mentioned once by the person who talks about heaven the most, and that's here in the Bible. That assumption is not a true one, yet we believe it because it's comfortable to us, our society believes it, my neighbor, my coworker believes it, so I can believe it too. Ultimately, though, it's just someone's opinion. And there are three major problems when we start to believe that all good people go to heaven, that people who just live a good life go to heaven. Number one, whose standard of good are we measuring it against? By what standard of good are we measuring it against? I encourage all of you, if you have an opportunity, there's a book that we have in the fellowship hall that I encourage you to read. It's called Nobody's Perfect, So How Good is Good Enough? It's a book written by Pastor Andy Stanley. I'd ask you to read that. It's a great way to understand this concept. How good is good enough? Number one, whose standard are we measuring it against? We are clueless as to what is good and what is bad because if we are building our own standards, all we'll ultimately do is compare ourselves to someone else. I'm not a serial killer. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a dictator. I'm not racist. And as a result... I am good enough is the assumption that we start to assume. We start to say things like, I've done more good in my life than bad in my life. And if we think about that, we might actually push that down a little bit further than we actually believe. 
oftentimes we don't know the standard to measure ourselves against. But Romans chapter 3 in the Bible gives us the standard. It tells us exactly what the standard is for all of us sitting here today who want to be good enough to go to heaven. And it's a very simple standard. Romans chapter 3 says very clearly like this. No one is good enough. No one is declared righteous. No one is capable of living the perfect life that gets you guaranteed access into heaven. That's the standard. The standard is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. There is no way any of us can live the perfect life that we believe gets us into heaven. This notion, this assumption that if my good outweighs my bad, I somehow earn eternity is one that we've created. Our societies have created. People have created over time to make them feel better about this assumption that as long as I do more good than bad, I will have access to eternity. But there is no standing that says that. Number two, number one, first of all, was that there's no, uh, so no objective standard to measure it against. Number two, there's no way to measure our progress. How do I know how good I've been? What kind of standards do I have to measure that against? Do I make it to heaven if I have 51% good and 49% bad? Is that the standard? We don't know because we've made this assumption ourselves and it lulls us into a false sense of security. And finally, it goes against what Jesus taught. Jesus never taught that good people go to heaven. In fact, the people he's talking to in this passage in Matthew were the Pharisees. They were professional good people. That's what they did. They made rules around the rules so they never broke the first rule. For example, and this is how Andy Stanley describes it, if the rule was you can't step over this platform or over this stage area, the Pharisees would make another rule that you can't go within four feet of the platform edge. They were so obsessed with following the rules that they built rules around the rules. They were professional good people. And to them, Jesus goes and says, you stand no chance because you have taken commandment number two and separated it from commandment number one. You do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Instead, you do a bunch of good things that you think are good because you're following a bunch of rules. And Jesus separates the two. It goes against what he taught. In fact, if you look in the final moments when Jesus is on the cross, he is, he's hung up on this cross and crucified between two criminals, two bad people in our language, two people who don't deserve heaven. And one of them has a conversation with Jesus where he identifies Jesus as his savior and asks him, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, you will be with me today in paradise. Uh, let me ask you a question. That criminal had a criminal life hung on a cross with three nails and in this moment he identifies Jesus as his savior and Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. What good could he do from that point on? He is going to die in a few minutes. There is no good that he can do with nails piercing his hands and his feet. There is nothing else he can do. Jesus said very quickly in that one statement, he's showing you again that you can experience paradise. All you have to do is trust in me in the process. There is no good you can do beyond this. The standard is one that we assume is true, but it has never been true. And this is what happens when we have this moving target of morality. In his book called Morality After Auschwitz, Peter Haas writes this story about 
Why was it possible for millions of Germans to get behind Adolf Hitler and say it's okay to exterminate Jews and gypsies? How did that happen? These were people, many of whom were sophisticated, educated people, who in that era decided it's perfectly fine that we eradicate this entire race of people. There's no problem with that. They even believed it was for the greater good if we did that. Because in that time, in that society, in that community, it made sense in that community. It was ethical in that community for the greater good to eradicate these six million people here. Do you see how morality shifts? Morality moves based on who's in power, who's popular, who says what on television. It changes, it moves, it shifts, but God is constant. He is always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, he is always the same. And because of that, you and I have an objective moral truth that we can hold on to, that we can believe in. If you've been watching the headlines recently, you're seeing this more and more. Just a couple of weeks ago, CBS News had this massive headline that Iceland, the nation of Iceland, had eradicated Down syndrome. And when you clicked on the article, you believed that, wow, this country must have had some major medical breakthrough to, to eradicate Down syndrome. But what were they really doing? They were aborting every single child who might possibly have a genetic marker for Down syndrome. Is that the same thing? Now, what happens next? What's the next step on this? If we believe morally that this is okay, now do we start to remove blind people from our society? Or people who don't have all of their mental faculties, do we remove them from our society? This is what happens when there's a moving target of morality. We determine based in our culture, in our time, in our opinions, what is good and what is bad. And as a result, we separate the two commandments. But when we come back to Matthew chapter 22, we understand why Jesus wants us to fight against social injustices. Why does he want us to love our neighbors, to help people who are earthquake victims and hurricane victims? He wants us to do it because if we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength, we also so we'll naturally love our neighbor so that they can meet this God who we love with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength. There is a connection between commandment number one and commandment number two. In the book of James chapter two, James goes into great detail about this idea of our works and our faith going together and working together in harmony. James says that faith must have actions. They must work in unison. They must work in tandem together. They must be one that my faith, my belief in God must be joined together with my love for my neighbor and together we witness the love of God to this world because of what we do with our neighbor. Not because I just do it in a vacuum and help people because I think it's good today. We do it because it draws them back to a God who loves them more than anything else. This morning as we sit here in this place, we have to ask the question, where have we let the word good deceive us? Where have we let the words morality and justice deceive us? Are we separating the two commandments and living one out or living out the other and not living them out together? For those of you who call yourselves followers of Christ, this is a massive calling on all of us. That it's not enough for me to say I love God and still do nothing to take care of my neighbor. But that I must do the two together in unison to show that I love God and that I love my neighbor. But for those of you who may not call yourselves a follower of Christ, I ask you, are you sure 
that your good works will get you into heaven. If the standard for good works is perfection, are you perfect? Or if you're not perfect, how good is good enough? Jesus never came to bring perfect people to heaven. He's bringing forgiven people to heaven. And that's why every person sitting next to you is assured of this and shows up here on a Sunday and loves their neighbor because we know we're not perfect. We are forgiven. And that's a big difference. Christ did not come to this world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive in Christ. And this is the opportunity that you and I have to go to this world and find where there is injustice, find where there is some sort of evil or some sort of bad or someone hurting, and we can go and love them. But as we love them, let's bring them back to the God that calls us to love them. This is the great passion of our hearts. This is the great call and mission of all of us that are gathered here today. Don't let the word good deceive you. Don't let the assumption of goodness deceive you. Maybe the idea of good appeals to you, but in the end, if it does not draw your friend and your neighbor back to God, ultimately it falls short of what God calls us to. And so this morning we have an opportunity to ask ourselves, to take an inventory and to look into our hearts to see God Where is it that you want me to join these two commands back together? Help me to love you more with all of my heart, with all of my soul and all of my strength, and then let me take my actions and bring the two together. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close out in worship this morning. This morning, if you have put your trust in your own actions, in your own good I hope you will see how flimsy that can actually be. That the definition of good changes all the time. The definition of good changes from culture to culture. It changes from state to state in the United States. It changes in my own heart. What I used to think was good is probably not good. What I used to think was bad is now fine. It changes all the time. But there's an objective moral standard that God provides for us. I believe that that I can do good things for someone else because God calls me to love someone else. I believe that men and women are created equal because God says so. I believe that people should be treated the same regardless of the color of their skin because God says so. There is an objective moral standard in scripture. There's an objective moral standard with God. And if we've been running around trying to chase after this idea of good that we've planted in our heads, I ask you to question that idea today. Is it really good? Then why is it good? Is it good because I say it's good or is it good because it's really good? Is there an objective moral standard? And for all of us sitting here today, today is an opportunity to think about the areas where I can take my love for God and join it together with the justice that I fight for in the world around me for the good that I want to see in the world around me. If the good you're doing draws people to God, then that's exactly the type of good that God is calling us to have today. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. God, when we were sinners, steeped in sin, blinded by our own wickedness and deception, Lord God, You loved us enough to do the impossible that what we could never do. The salvation that we could never earn, the forgiveness that we could never win, you came and you died for us and you took my place 
so that I could experience the peace that only you can give, Lord. God, forgive me for the areas of my life where I have fooled myself into believing that I am good, that I am capable of some kind of good without you, Lord. God, I ask that in this time, in this place, Lord God, each of us would be able to understand those areas in our lives where we have been deceived by the word good, where we have believed we ourselves are good, where we believe that there is a good apart from you, where we even believe that good people go to heaven. Forgive us for that deception, Lord God. Thank you because it is what you did on the cross that gives us salvation, that gives us eternal life. Thank you for your interaction with that thief on the cross that reminds us there is no good work that I can do that will ever give me salvation. It is only by placing my trust in you. God, I ask that all of us would have our hearts set on justice, on morality, on doing good in the world around us. But God, let us never lose our eyes or our sight on you, the source of goodness and justice and morality. Let us bring every one of those actions back to you, Lord God. We give you thanks in this place today. And as we worship you today, oh God, help us to keep our focus on that throughout this week. We give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together. Thank you again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont Campus. At Mount Hope, we gather each week to learn more about God, grow in our love of God and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts area, we'd love to have you join us. We meet Sunday mornings in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. and Sunday mornings in Belmont at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at our website, www.mounthope.org. Have a good day, and we'll see you back here next week.